All right, folks, Monday morning here. We've got a great episode of the podcast joined by the Athletics' Scott Wheeler to talk about the 2020 NHL Draft. If you've been following along, you know that I absolutely love the draft. I love following it. I love the storylines. I love the mistakes by teams, the unintentional comedy. It's all fantastic. I think that it's going to be – it's Zoom, so is it – it's going to be what it's going to be, but it's still going to be an amazing spectacle on Tuesday night. And it's crazy things are going to happen. And I figured while we're here, I'm going to give you a few of my projections, forecasts, crazy predictions. So I, I talk about it with Scott later in the pod. There's an over-under betting line on the number of defensemen that go in the first round. And typically you see 9.8 is the average that we've seen in the cap era for defensemen drafted in the first round. And while the average mock draft only has about six of them going, and so that's how you get that line of six and a half, I just, I think you have to bet on the over. And more to that point, I would bet on Jake Sanderson being the top defenseman selected likely in the top five i think jamie drysdale and caden gooley are going to join him in the top 10 there's an over under betting line on the goalie yaroslav askarov of 10.5 for his draft selection and i think he's going to go in the top 10 so that means in a draft with seven Elite forwards seems to kind of be the consensus. Certainly folks that I've been talking about this stuff with in my uh, fantasy leagues, generally we're, we're honed in on seven being the number of like can't miss forward prospects. So that means one of those is going to fall out of the top 10 entirely. And I would guess it's probably going to be alexander holtz or marco rossi just because i don't know does holtz do anything other than the big shot a lot of people think that he does but that's out there and then with rossi it's just it's the size and the skating and that's always a factor for people even though so many public draft lists have him as a top five talent some have him as high as three a whole bunch of people have Tim Stutzla outside of the top five, but for our purposes, he's going number two to the LA Kings. That seems to be where things are leaning, and that means Quentin Byfield's going number three to Ottawa, just for fantasy leagues in general. Right now, it's kind of back and forth between Stutzla and Byfield for the number two or three spot in fantasy drafts, but I think that landing in Ottawa would I think it's going to hurt Byfield's fantasy draft value but if a whole bunch of defensemen climb up draft boards and some of those mid-tier forwards like Perfetti or Rossi end up getting knocked down the draft boards then maybe that leaves Byfield alone in any case some other predictions I think the Oilers at number 14, I don't even know if Seth Jarvis is going to be there. Like I, I've been talking a lot about him all throughout this summer. And I think that he's a top 10 talent 
and he's not going to go in the top 10, but he may be gone by the 14th pick. But either way, I think the Oilers are trading back because they want a little more draft capital. And if they can trade back into the 20 range and then pick up a second rounder to do so, then I think they would be all over that. And they end up taking Maverick Bork with the pick when they do trade back. That's that's kind of what I've settled on. And if you look at what uh, Ken Holland has done throughout his drafts, it's he has leaned heavily on picks from the queue, picks from Sweden, and then later round type picks coming out of Russia. So I don't think there'll be that Swedish player that he would really key in on in the 20 range. Unless maybe you wanted to say Noel Gundler, but I think that more liable to fall back on what he likes to do and lean on a very talented forward coming out of the queue. Uh, in terms of other things that we might see, you typically see about two player for pick trades in a draft in the first round. And when I was talking with Alex McLean on the free agency preview podcast, I set the line just speculatively at two and a half. And then after doing the research, no, the average is two. And I like the over just because of the weird circumstances that we find ourselves in with the flat cap and teams desperately trying to move money. But there are going to be some teams that are willing to take on money. The Montreal Canadiens, have proven themselves to be one of them. And I don't know if they've invested too much money so that they wouldn't be able to trade their number 16 pick, but we know it's in play. I don't know what their target is, but I definitely see them moving that pick. I think the Toronto Maple Leafs are another team that could move their pick. The one that they acquired for Kapanen from the Pittsburgh Penguins. I think that's in play. I think Arizona is going to be desperate to land themselves a first rounder. They didn't meet the expectations that they were hoping to after trading for Taylor Hall and they fancied themselves more competitive than they were. And now you've got this whole new regime in place and they're going to want to make a pick. Plus they got beat up with those punishments for the illegal testing that they did and they're not going to want to let whatever testing they did get in go to waste so they're going to look to slash salary there's going they're going to look to dump and i think that they're going to try to do all that while getting themselves back into the first round and if i was a betting man which i am but i don't think there's a betting line on this i think a calgary at 19 who bites on getting Arizona a uh, first round pick. We've seen Brad Tree living. He's he's involved in every single trade discussion that's out there or, or many of the trade discussions that are out there. He's made a big trade at three of the five drafts he's been involved with as the Flames GM. You remember the Dougie Hamilton uh, deal with Boston where he gave a bunch of picks. Travis Hamanek pick up a bunch of picks. Um, he, he traded Dougie Hamilton 
for Noah Hannafin and Adam Fox somehow traded two number one defensemen in one deal. That one with Carolina that landed them Elias Lindholm. He's traded for multiple goalies at uh, his drafts. He So th- this is his MO, and I wonder if Darcy Kemper is a possibility there. I don't think you're getting him out of Arizona for less than a first rounder. And I wonder if that is in a way that they solve some of their salary problems while also getting that first round pick that they really want. And I think that would just be such an interesting way to kick off or continue the madness that has been uh, this year's goalie carousel. That's it. That Those are my predictions for this coming NHL draft. I can't wait to see what happens. And now our interview with Scott Wheeler. Already another episode of the Steve Laidlaw podcast, and I'm pleased to be joined by the Athletics' Scott Wheeler. Scott, it's draft season. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good at this point. It's been a, a long road to get here, but now I'm uh, I'm just coming back from a cottage this weekend. I got away for a couple of days, and I was telling my wife in the car on the way home that I'm kind of just in in that space now where it's like, okay, let let's get into it. Let's get it over with. Can't can't wait to sort of dive in on the the sort of content side over the next three, four days here. And um, it, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to putting it in the rearview mirror, but I'm also looking forward to the, to the draft itself. It's, it's going to be an interesting one. And I think there's a lot that's kind of up in the air. So um, looking forward to seeing how it's going to play out, if you will. Yeah, this could be the last bit of hockey action other than, I guess, following what's happening overseas. And I guess some leagues are, are starting to get going on the North American side, but it, it sure feels like we're going to be going into quite the lull until whenever we see hockey coming back. Yeah, it's uh, the next few weeks, I think, are going to be crazy in terms of particularly NHL news with free agency, et cetera. We're already beginning to see the trickle down of, of some trades and, and rumored signings and that kind of a thing as, as free agency looms here. But once you get through free agency, we're really going to have a month, a month and a half where right until Christmas, it looks like at this point, it's going to be pretty quiet. We're eventually going to have training camps and those kinds of things start up and you're going to have people sort of, or players, if you will, at least back in their cities and all of that. But um, it's it's definitely going to be a, a little bit of a lull and, and probably a, a sort of long overdue one. They've had to compete with the NBA and the PGA Tour and um, all, now the MLB playoffs, et cetera. So uh, maybe it's good for the, NHL to kind of take the backseat a little bit here and then come back with a little bit more of a spotlight on them because it's been a crowded sports landscape the last month or so. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's going to be fun to see how the how the sort of free agency plays out now that we know that budgets are what they are and, and not every team's going to be sending spending to the top of the salary cap and that kind of a thing. But once you get through that, it's it's definitely going to quiet down a little bit for a little while. You mentioned the NBA. I was kind of hoping that they would frig off a little bit and not share the exact same timeline as the Mm -hmm. NHL for once because I love both of these leagues and I'd love nothing more than to be able to follow both of their playoffs as in-depth as I would like to and I was kind of forced to pick and choose this summer and I I leaned NHL this summer and I don't know maybe in the future I'll be leaning NBA but uh, 
yeah, hopefully the the schedules line up in the future where where I can follow both. But uh, sticking with taking examples from other leagues, have you heard anything about what the NHL is going to be doing for this draft? Is it going to be very similar to what the NFL pulled off back in the spring? Yeah, they've definitely taken some notes from the NFL broadcast. You're going to have live cameras in a lot of the top prospects is sort of homes, if you will. They've all been made aware of the setup. It's in the process on the production side of sort of dotting the I's and, and crossing the T's and that kind of a thing. It's, those balls have been in motion for the last few weeks in terms of just making it feel like it's still an NHL draft. You're going to see uh, the broadcast panel on, on sort of Sportsnet and NBC on the first night. And then you're on the second day when, when sort of rounds two through seven take place, it'll be a sort of syndicast of the, the NHL network, which will be broadcast on the NHL network in the United States and then on Sportsnet uh, via the NHL network here. And um, I, I think day two is going to be a little bit trickier for them by the sounds of it, just because a, a lot of the prospects who they've made arrangements with will obviously be picked in the first round. So in terms of the kind of content that people want out, out of a broadcast, it's probably going to be a little bit more limited. You're going to have people like Sam Cosentino and others who are going to be live on air, both with Sportsnet and then later with, with the NHL network who are going to have a, the ability to kind of break it all down for you uh, if you're sitting at home. But otherwise the, the, the production value is going to be on night one with the, with the first round and you're going to have interviews with a lot of the players. You're going to have that, that sort of typical sort of setup, if you will, where as soon as a player gets picked, they're going to be not only sort of hopping on a zoom call to do media availabilities with their, their new sort of, local press at whichever market they're at but they're also going to be hopping on the broadcast to just talk about the moment with with the folks at Sportsnet and NBC and, and all of that so um yeah it's it's going to be different it's going to look different but I think they've done a good job by the sounds of it and those I've talked to of, of sort of arranging for everybody to to be prepared um for for kind of broadcast from inside the home kind of thing so you'll see that with 20 30 35 kids who are going to sort of be made available in a in a kind of virtual setting here so we'll see what it looks like once they sort of pull it all off but it, it'll be the typical sort of cast of broadcasters on the tv side and then we'll see how the rest kind of plays out if you will it's it's, it's definitely going to look and feel differently but i think you know it'll still feel familiar it's not going to be weird i think there's going to be uh just a little bit of a different setting in terms of seeing some of the kids reactions as they're getting picked seeing uh, their families, that kind of a thing. It, it's all going to be recorded. So uh, you'll have some insight into, into where these kids are at and, and sort of what their draft parties and all that looks like. Oh, that's very exciting because you know I'm a huge fan of the unintentional comedy that sometimes occurs at the NHL draft just uh, between the players and and the the GMs and everything. And so we, we got a lot of that out of the NFL. You didn't mention Batman, so we're not going to see Batman like we did uh, Roger Goodell with the ever-changing outfits and the scarfing down of M&Ms? We will see Gary. Gary is going to be in studio for, for the entire broadcast, so he's going to be sort of present um, at the American studio for the broadcast. And, and I'm imagine that he's going to do some kind of an address uh, before everything takes place. So G Gary is definitely going to be a part of the broadcast, but you're not going to have, I don't think he's going to be as involved as, um, 
I don't know. We'll see. I, I haven't actually heard what his involvement is going to look like, but I don't think he's going to be as involved as someone like an Adam Silver is in that typical situation. So, yeah, I think you might see him do kind of a, an address at the start, and we might get the I have a trade to announce that, that we all know and love at, at, out of Gary at the draft in, in the last decade. Um, but I don't think it's going to extend beyond that. I, my guess would be that he's not going to be making the individual picks for the teams and that they'll there will be some kind of feed into these quote-unquote war rooms where you're going to be able to see the GMs in action and see them kind of make their pick and make their announcement. I picture Bettman sucking on a Werther's original and in a time by himself, unexposed to, to anyone else. I don't think he would ever allow us to share in that moment, but, but definitely we have a trade to announce. Yeah, that's, I'm excited for that. He has to uh, continue to provide that for us. What are teams doing to replace the combine that they missed out on this year? Have they asked the NHL to see the Coyotes testing data? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's been a, certainly a different process, but I'm not sure it's been less thorough for, for NHL clubs in terms of the, the kind of things that typically come out of the combine, which is A, sort of physical testing results and be the, the more important asset is, is the, the interview process and getting to know those kids a little bit better. And um, certainly I think the testing, especially on a sort of uniform and everybody's doing the same testing that has been lost. The, the data that they get from that, the insight that they might get into the players that are either really out of shape or really in shape. I think the, the middle, the middle ground is becomes kind of a moot point in terms of the combine. I think the, the only time that the combine in terms of the physical testing has an impact, on where these kids are at it's typically with the people who did who performed extremely well and the people who performed extremely poorly everybody else it's kind of just a chance for them to do their interviews and that kind of a thing so you lose some of that maybe for the kids who are particularly athletic maybe there's a, a lost opportunity cost if you will but I think in terms of the other piece of the puzzle teams have done a ton I'm talking several hundred sort of zoom calls per team in some cases where these kids have not only interviewed they've not only interviewed virtually everyone who's on their draft board but they've interviewed some kids three four five times over the course of the summer just to really get to know them get to know what they're all about get to know their families it's been a very very sort of intensive process for a lot of these kids doing all of their their zoom interviews if you will so um, I don't think they've lost anything that way. I think, uh, I mean, other than sitting at the same table as the kids and maybe getting some body language out of it that you can't get over Zoom, that their opportunity with all of this extra time to get to know these kids has been a huge advantage for a lot of teams. So I think teams are feeling pretty comfortable about regaining most of what they've lost from losing the combine. Well, that's, I guess that's pretty good to hear. I wonder if they could just do away with the combine altogether. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I'm not sold on that ever happening because I think the teams like to get together and it's good, also a good place in advance of the draft to begin having trade talks and that kind of a thing. But uh, yeah, I don't know. The, the combine's a little bit of a weird concept to begin with. Is there anything that you saw in these playoffs that had any impact on how you evaluate players or what you're looking for? Good question. Um, I think one of the things that came up, I, I just finished doing a story that will come out uh, sort of as he gets picked that, that it's already done on a kid by the name of Ryan O'Rourke. And one of the things that I, I sort of developed an appreciation of in, in terms of not only learning about O'Rourke, but learning about the way that, that 
teams are approaching kids like him is that O'Rourke is, is kind of a bit of a throwback. He's a physical type. He's a, a sort of stay-at-home positional defender in his own zone. Um, but he, he's, he's kind of that blend of the kid who's capable of chasing the hit and then the kid who's also capable of kind of playing that cautious game. And I, I think what, what, uh, what I'm trying to get at with a kid like him in terms of what has maybe changed for me in, in terms of watching the playoffs was that I think teams are increasingly, especially with defensemen, are beginning to value the those sort of those defensive qualities, if you will, in defenders. I think teams are care less and less now about the sort of counting stats. And sure, there's the Miro Heiskinens and the Kale McCars and the, these these players and, and Rasmus Dallin's going to make a career of doing the same thing. These players who put up these massive counting stats. But I think what what teams are seeing in players like Ryan O'Rourke and in some of the other players that thrived in this year's playoffs and quite quite frankly in last year's playoffs when St. Louis went on their run was just that the, the four, it's the forward's job to score the goals and to create the offense. And it's the, the defender's job to snuff out the offense that comes the other way and then make the smart play going the other direction. And I think increasingly with a lot of the players that you're seeing have sort of major success in the playoffs on the back end now, it, it's the players who can be relied upon to play 22, 23, 24 minutes a night. And maybe they don't give you offense on every every given night. And maybe they're not the Shea Theodores of the world uh, or the Miro Heishkins. But the, the, we've seen value in other players that play a more physical brand, that play a more suffocating style. I mean, look at the success that the Dallas Stars and the New York Islanders had in these playoffs playing that kind of low energy, sort of low results, quiet, physical, sort of swallow you up and spit you back out kind of a style and I think teams have an appreciation of that in terms of what translates from the playoffs if anything or from the regular season I should say if anything to the playoffs and it seems to be I think teams believe this either rightly or wrongly that that they they think that these those types of defensemen those sort of state not stay at home types because every defenseman in today's NHL needs to be able to play fast and play quickly and have enough skill to operate in the offensive zone and play and transition through the, through the neutral zone and carry the puck when they have to and that kind of thing. But increasingly, I think that those types, those player types are, are, are sort of making a little bit of a comeback after for, for the last four or five years, quite frankly, it, it seemed like it was trending the other way and every team wanted to be the, the sort of Leafs or the Tampa Bay Lightning where you're playing a bit of a track meet and there was all this emphasis placed on speed and skill and as much as that's always going to be the emphasis now in today's NHL given that it's not as as sort of physically taxing as it used to be I do think it's starting to go that other direction at least a little bit again the pendulum has begun swinging the other direction in part because of the success the success I should say of of players like or of teams like Dallas and New York so we'll see what happens it's going to be interesting I think O'Rourke and players like that could go maybe a little bit higher than people expect them as kind of a reaction to that movement you could see players like Caden Gooley and Braden Schneider and and Ryan O'Rourke these these players who are very strong in their own zone and and have decent offensive skill but may not wow you with their offensive skill maybe they start to go a little bit higher now as teams say okay we need to find guys who can kind of button it down defensively well that's a Phenomenal answer there, Scott. It, it it leads towards kind of what I was thinking, how we saw the NHL. They're constantly trying to play that game of copycat and teams chase size with the Kings and Bruins winning cups in the early 2010s. And it just, it, it's constantly evolving. And so we saw all these 
young defensemen make splashes. And I just, I, I get this sense that, and we've already seen the trend, uh, the average number of defensemen in the cap era going in the first round is about 10. But in the past few years, we've seen it push even higher. But in this year's draft, the over-under, the betting line is six and a half. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, like, you have to take the over for that because teams are going to be flying out the doors to to draft guys. Like, there's Drysdale and Sanderson at the top, and you named a, a handful of other guys who are generally been mocked in, in the first round. But it, it only takes a couple extra guys to slide in there. And you've got all these teams with – multiple first rounders who there's no way they want to walk out of here without at least one defenseman with one of their picks. So I, I just think it, it screams over for me. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's, uh, I mean, it is, it's tough to say. It, it is certainly a, a draft that's lighter on defensemen. There, there's no question about that. This is a draft class that really uh, after Sanderson and Drysdale, I think there's, a handful of, of defensemen who have a realistic case to go in the first round. But again, I do think you'll see more than that. That's just the way that the draft is trending. There's never going to be two defensemen taken in the top 15. Uh, you're going to see a, a defenseman like a Caden Gooley or a Braden Schneider, or maybe both slide up into that top 15. I think a lot like you did last year with players like Victor Soderstrom and Moritz Sider and Philip Roberg, who on talent maybe didn't have the same kind of case that the Trevor Zegerses and the Matt Boldies and the Peyton Krebses and the Cole Caulfields. You go down the list, the Alex Newhooks, who maybe slipped a little bit too far. But but again, the teams in that range, that once you get outside of the top seven or eight, teams are – uh, they do still draft for position, not not in every circumstance, but in many they do. And I, I think you'll see that same kind of trend play out this year. You're going to see seven, eight, nine defensemen go in the first round at minimum, I think. And then it, it, that's going to continue even into the second round where maybe there aren't the number of, of sort of quality defensemen that you hope for in a typical draft class. I think at forward, this draft class is exceptionally strong, but at defensemen, it's definitely a below average draft especially when you compare it to what's coming in 2021, which is a draft that for a rare change is really going to be defined by its defensemen. So it, it, it's going to be, it's going to be live in that sense, I think, because I think the teams that are going to go defensemen in the first round, whether you're a team like the New Jersey Devils or the Ottawa Senators, and you're talking yourself into taking a defenseman because you don't want to walk away with three forwards in that range, um, or whether you're just another team that decides to, to move up or move down or reach on a defenseman. I do think that that's inevitably going to happen. So I think ultimately what's going to happen in this draft is when it's all said and done, the winners and losers five years from now, I suspect that the teams that don't is sort of hit that button or, or sort of uh, give into that urge to go defensemen are the ones that are going to be really, really happy five or six years from now. I think there's going to be huge value in this draft at forward as those defensemen slide up and they, they're inevitably taken in the teens and in the twenties, you're going to have some darn good forward prospects that slip into the late first, early second round, maybe even into the latter part of the second round where you could end up with the top six forward. You could end up with an impact guy three or four years from now. And that's going to be the real sort of win and loss of wins and losses, if you will, of, of that sort of first, second, third round. I think the teams that go forward and take that kind of swing on the talented forwards in this draft are going to be really happy. You participated in one of the redrafts that I did on these pods. And one of the things that I learned from doing those redrafts is it it just seems that 
we understand how to project forwards so much better than we do any of the yeah. other positions. I've been gearing in on this theory and maybe it's just my, my fantasy hockey brain. And maybe it's just cause this draft class is so forward heavy that it gears towards it. But, and, and maybe I'm just stealing Tom Dundon's idea, but I just have this notion that I would rank my, my, bo- my board would be only projectable forwards up until a point where it's no longer top six forwards and then I would only ever draft defensemen or goalies after that because it's much more of a crapshoot with those positions and I know that I would miss out on the Miro Heiskanen's and Victor Hedman's of the world by doing that but I would also open myself up to the Shea Weber's and Jacob Slavin's of the world going that route because it seems like we know who the good forwards are but we don't know who the good defensemen and goalies are. Yeah, and it's become an interesting dichotomy, I think, because I, I have always tended to agree that it is a lot more difficult to evaluate defensemen than it is forwards. I think that's just the nature of the beast. When you're watching a hockey game, your tendency, even if you're a scout and, you, and you're sort of conscious of this bias, your tendency is to watch the puck and watch whoever has the puck and watch the way that the players on whichever team that has the puck are rotating around the player that's carrying it. So that's just the natural way that your eyes go in a game. You're not watching the defensive detail. You're not picking up on those defensive details unless you're really, really looking for them. And unless you're a scout and you've decided at this entering game that I'm, I'm going to do my best to avoid puck watching and I'm going to focus on specific players and the job that they're doing without the puck. Um, so that, that, that in itself is an extremely challenging process. And then it's just the natural thing. The second natural thing is that we notice the flash more than we notice the subtle little things. We notice the big goal. We notice the nice pass. We notice the way when a defender is sort of escapes pressure with his feet. All of those things are things that we notice, but we don't notice the, the little details with the stick or the little play through, through a sort of layer of pressure that helps you open up defensively or the way that you gap up or the way that you chase or stand around in your own zone. And, and those kinds of things are a lot tougher to focus on when you're watching these kids play. Um, but at the same sort of token, if you will, I, I think on, on the reverse side of it, the argument that I would make and I think others would make is that a lot of the best picks of the last few drafts have been defensemen. And, the, the big wins of the last few drafts, I mean, you can look at an Elias Pedersen, certainly that's, that's one of the biggest wins of the last sort of five draft classes, if you will. But it's the Charlie McAvoys, it's the Miro Heishkinins, it's the Kale McCars, it's the Quinn Hughes. These are the players that even, even as we, we talk about how difficult it is to evaluate defensemen, Teams have done a really good job finding those sort of star level defensemen. And maybe that's just a blip on the radar. And this is something that that's going to fade in time. And we're just in a cycle here where a lot of the top talent has been on D, but it has been, I think, harder in some cases to evaluate those forwards. You look at Alex Turcott, who went fifth overall last year. You look at the season that Matthew Boldy had in the first half last season. They didn't meet expectations. They didn't go out and have the kind of years that you would expect out of, in Turcott's case, a fifth overall pick, or in Matt Boldy's case, a 12th overall pick. So uh, I don't know. It's It's been weird the last few years to see the success that some of those defensemen have had and then to see forwards that were going – into the draft thinking this kid's going to be a star to see them struggle in other ways. So I, I think it just speaks to a, how difficult it is to evaluate all positions at hockey goalie forward. It doesn't matter. Even as things get easier, even as more at sort of public sphere data is made available to us. Um, even as we be teams and, and sort of scouts like myself begin to value the, the analytics side of things more than they used to. 
it's still a, a very complicated sport to evaluate. It's not as simple as evaluating baseball players or even basketball players where you can sort of target players for a specific role. Hockey's just a, a crapshoot, and there's so much that happens after these kids get picked at 17, 18 years old that still determines whether they're going to be top prospects and, and how quickly they're going to develop. And injuries are a major issue in the sport. So you go down the list, and it's just a very, very hard sport to, to evaluate, and I think it's always going to be that way. And certainly evaluating defensemen, even as things have trended to, towards success with some of the top defensemen in the last few years, it, it's still a position that is just foreign to some people, especially if you haven't played it, and especially if you enter a game and you're not conscious of your effort to watch the defenseman on the ice play, because it's a lot, it's a lot easier when you're sitting in the rink or watching on TV to focus on the forwards. Yeah, in, in a sport where at the highest level, every game is a weighted coin flip, why would talent evaluation yeah. be any different? Yeah. Um, so at the top of the draft, Lafreniere seems like he's an absolute slam dunk. Mm -hmm. I've got the number one pick in a couple of dynasty drafts, and I still find myself torn between him and Byfield just looking at all the tools and the the age relative scoring of Byfield, it, it just seems like there should be more of an argument there, and there isn't. Yeah, I think part of that is just because of the certainty that comes with with a player like Alexi. It's it's really, really hard not to take a sure thing at that spot. Even at first overall, where the goal should be to find superstar, sort of top-level, top-tier talent, there's still an urge to say, okay, one of these kids is a sure thing and the other kid is a more of a lottery ball and let's take the sure thing. Let's take a kid like Alexi Lafreniere who's older, who's more physically mature, who can kind of do it all, who doesn't have any real glaring holes in his game that make us question his upside. And let's just take the kid that we know is going to be a star versus the one who maybe has a little bit more upside, but, with, but there's some risk involved. So I, I think that's where the, the conversation has kind of started and ended with, with sort of Alexi versus Quinton, if you will. I think every year we try to manufacture these debates that often aren't there. We did it with even Jack Eichel and Connor McDavid as great as, as Connor McDavid was. There was still this sense of, oh, Jack's special too, and trying to sort of force him into the conversation there. Um, and when we do it every year, I mean, other, other than Taylor and Tyler, the famous Taylor and Tyler draft year, where it really was kind of 50-50 right down to the wire, it's, there's always a clear-cut kid that tends to emerge. And I think what Lafreniere has done is become just the, the sure thing, the, the, the pick that nobody really has to worry about. When you look at the other players at the top of this draft, Marco Rossi's got questions about his skating and his size. Cole Perfetti's got questions about his skating and his size. Lucas Raymond, same, same two questions. Tim Stutzler's got questions about the way that he plays when he doesn't have the puck and his ability to slow down and to process the game when he's not going a mile a minute. Alexander Holtz has questions about his playmaking and his ability to play as more than a sort of shot threat. It, it, all of these kids have kind of holes in their game, and I think Quinton is in that kind of same boat where – He's got a little bit of a hunch in his stride. He's a younger kid. There, there's uh, at six foot four. It's still, dis still, despite the fact that that everybody, every team wants a six foot four center. It's still a very hard thing to find, especially to find the proper talent level to match that size. And outside of Blake Wheeler and Eric Stahl and Evgeny Malkin and maybe Nico Rantanen, there haven't been that many players of that size over the last decade, even fifteen years, that have had sort of star level success. So. 
Quinton's just a, he, he's kind of a unicorn. He's different. He's, he looks and plays differently out there. And I think what makes him so exciting to me and the reason I've had him as the clear number two over all of those other players that I've mentioned all year is just that the, the package, and, and this is certainly something that fantasy owners care, care maybe even more deeply about than sort of NHL clubs who are maybe a little bit more risk averse, but the, the potential of what Byfield might be able to be is, is very hard to pass up. When, when you can skate and make plays and you're that size and you've still got room to get even stronger and you've still got room to improve your defensive game and improve your ability on face-offs and kind of clean up those other little details. If the little details are the problem, then you don't really have a ton to worry about. So I think that's the argument for Quinton at the top of the draft is the, the things that you're worried about with him they're, they tend to be tiny kind of minor kinks. There's maybe the defensive zone awareness isn't there all the time. Maybe you'd like him to be better on face-offs, which has always been a little bit of a weakness. Maybe you'd like him not to have that hunch in his stride because you're worried that he might get blown up at the NHL level if he skates like that. But those are things that can be cleaned up and it's the skill and the package and the size and that blend of talent and upside that, that, that can't really be taught quote unquote, if you want to use the old, the old hockey cliche. So um, I don't know, he's special. He's, he's going to be really good, I think, but I do think that there's a risk there that there isn't in Alexi and that's what has resulted in Alexi as kind of the, the clear choice, the easy choice, if you will, for a team like the Rangers, they're going to get, one of the top left wingers in the NHL for the next 10 or 15 years. And I'm not sure you can say that in drafting Quinton Byfield, you're going to get one of the top five centers in the NHL for the next 10 or 15 years. I think there's more of a risk of that not happening. So I think that's where it kind of starts and, and finishes, if you will. Interesting. And it, it seems like Byfield might even get passed by Stutzel. And I know that you don't have that in your rankings, but it just it reminds me of when Doug McLean was famously torn between Gilbert Brule and Anze Kopitar in the 05 draft, and he ultimately settles on, we have to pick the Canadian. And I think it tells you how far we've come that we would, we would even consider taking the, the slick German uh, over the big prototype Canadian. Yeah, definitely. And, and Tim is, is, he's the archetype of what every team covets nowadays. He's the potential next Matt Barzell. And I think teams learned their lesson. I mean, you talk about a kid who was, who was sort of passed up for the wrong reasons, but teams learned their lesson with Matt Barzell. Everybody realizes that that was a mistake and that the, the idea that we're not going to take a, a star level kid just because he's cocky or because he's not great defensively or because he's, He's not as consistent as we might hoped or those kinds of questions that propped in on players like the, uh, Matt Barzell teams are now realizing, I think, okay, we just need to find the most talented players. We need to swing on upside more than we used to. We need to sort of take more risk than we used to. And I think general managers in the NHL are still risk averse by nature that they're a little bit gun shy at times to, to, to make the bold move. But I think what's happened with Stutzler this year is that, now suddenly everybody wants to make the bold move. Everybody wants to draft the kid from a weird spot, a, a, a country that hasn't traditionally developed players of his caliber, and, and sort of take a swing on the upside, take a swing on the skating and, and the world-class transition game. And 
hope that you can find the player in the draft who's the most dynamic player off the rush and, and sort of work on the rest with him and then develop him. And, and that's not the, the approach that people used to take. They didn't want the development project. They didn't want the kid who had some warts but had some talent. They wanted this sort of sure thing, the safe thing. So Stutz is the opposite of that. He's the antithesis to that. And I think there's a real chance, maybe even 60-40 chance now that that Tim could go ahead of ahead of Quinton to the to the Kings there at number two. So that that would be a testament to a how far we've come, b how far German hockey has come, and just a, a general testament to the way that scouting has changed over the last few years and and the way that teams are approaching development. And I do think that Tim is a bit of a risk, despite the fact that he's a, a sort of exciting player with the puck and this brilliant brilliant skater he's still a kid who has some words to his game and and I think what what teams are increasingly aware of is okay we can we can fix some of the warts in these players but to find the true sort of defining qualities that the skating or the shooting or the passing or the playmaking that that one kid can do that no other kid in the draft can do that's the allure of a player like Stutzla or even a player like Cole Perfetti in a different way in terms of some of those other skill sets it's okay they've got some flaws sure but but there's a talent there that we can tap into and if we can post what they're good at then then we'll be laughing that's interesting that reminds me of kind of the evolution of what's taken place with the NFL draft because they're starting to get players younger and younger and so it's funny because now they're they're starting to focus so much of their attention on their combine testing and mm -hmm. that elite athleticism that otherwise they can't find and then rather than what the player is they think oh we're just going to take these athletes and mold them and it's just it's interesting that I don't think you can quite do that at the NHL level because there's such discrete skills that you have to have, but also you seem to be suggesting that teams are looking to find those elite discrete skills and then develop everything on top of it. Yeah. And I think not only the NFL, but uh, I would look, I would point to sort of the NBA as kind of a similar sort of drafting scenario. You look no further than players like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Pascal Siakam, these kids who were drafted for the potential of what they could be for their frames, for their athleticism, for that one sort of freakish skill that's so different and makes them so unique for their wingspan. All of those things enter the conversation in, in, in obviously the NFL, which you mentioned, but also in the NBA. And I think maybe the NHL is playing catch up in that regards. And you're not ever, I don't think going to get there just because the nature of, of NHL prospects is that, there isn't a lot that distinguishes them in that kind of a way. You occasionally see players like the Foodie Brothers or the McLeod Brothers or Zach Sinish and these kids who do that one thing way better than everybody else. And in all of those kids, it was their skating. And then um, on the flip side, the argument could easily be made that as teams have dialed in on that one skill and tried to build the rest, that there have been mistakes made that way as well. And look no further than a player like Zach Sinishin, who was the best skater in his draft class, but didn't have the other tools. And look no further, quite frankly, than the McLeod brothers, who have those same kinds of issues. It's if you're if you're just a better skater than everybody else how far does that really get you are you putting yourself in tough spots by skating into the corner or behind the net or are your feet moving too fast for your brain are you sort of 
walking in trouble because you just are getting so amped up. And I think Tim Stutzla in, in particular in this draft class can, can get into that trouble a little bit. And so can Jean-Luc Foudy, who will probably be a second rounder in this draft class. So um, you have to be cautious of, okay, we, can, we now know what skills really work in the NHL and what tools really work in the NHL. But are those other skills that are surrounding them enough to insulate and, and enough to prop them up? And oftentimes in the, in the NBA, you can just find a player who's more athletic than everybody else, and you can work around it. But maybe that's not the case in the NHL. Maybe these kids aren't so distinguished athletically. Maybe Jean-Luc Foudy isn't so much more athletic than his peers that the, the skill deficiency that he may have is, is enough to sort of prop up at that athleticism and I mean you look at the NHL nowadays too play it took Kasperi Kapanen and he still hasn't really figured it out but it took Kasperi Kapanen years to figure out how to utilize his skating to his advantage the same was said for Dylan Larkin it took Dylan Larkin a long time to become the Dylan Larkin that he is now so it, it maybe it's it's finding those skills but it, I think at, by the same token on the other side of that sort of pendulum if you will it's are, are we taking it too far? And you constantly have to be asking yourself that because at the end of the day, I don't think that the NHL is the NBA or the NFL in that way. No, because so much of the NHL is just, you You have to have this insane processing speed because yeah, well, everyone's fast now and sure you might be even faster than the elite, but it's, it's that Connor McDavid type stuff where not only is he the fastest guy in the NHL, but whenever they do testing, he's always the fastest in reaction time and those mm -hmm. decision-making and changes of direction. And that's the, I guess, ineffable. Yeah, no, there's, there's a quality to hockey. Uh, people always talk about how the game is becoming more of a track meet, et cetera, et cetera, and how speed now has a premium, but uh, I talk to scouts and coaches all the time. And I remember a, a conversation I had with Chris Lazary this year where he said mid-interview to me that, look, I, I don't think that that speed is is what it's made out to be in today's NHL. Once, especially in the offensive zone where, sure, in transition, the ability to escape, the ability to sort of burn that first layer, the ability to, to put defenders onto their heels or turn defenders off the rush through the neutral zone. All of those things have major value in today's NHL and speed in that way isn't going to go away. But once you're in the offensive zone, a lot of that speed in the game dies and suddenly you've got 10 guys who are fighting for a possession in a very small space. And it's, it's the other things. It's that processing speed that you talked about. It's the ability to play through layers, to play through pressure, to identify where the game is heading, to, to read instead of react. And I think that the players like Tim Stutzla in particular, part of the reason I've been a little bit lower on him is because he, he's the reactionary type. He's the kid who's constantly sort of just making the first play that's in front of him or trying to will the only play that he recognizes into existence. And I think a lot of the other players in this draft class that maybe thrive in a different way and the ones I may be a little bit higher on read the game in a different way. Cole Perfetti isn't fast, the fastest or the strongest kid on the ice. He's not super athletic. Lucas Raymond's the same way. Marco Rossi is the same way. But those kids understand how to get the most out of their ability. They understand how to utilize the space that's around them. They understand when, when it's necessary to slow down and that you don't always have to be moving at, at sort of top speed. And that sometimes just picking, picking teams and set plays apart and playing through layers and, and identifying where sort of weak spots are in, in, in pressure, all of that matters more in a lot of ways than the ability to just beat a guy one-on-one -on -one with raw skill or to 
burn a defenseman wide like a Tim Stutzla is so capable of doing off the rush. So it's, it's a balancing act in hockey for sure. It's, it, there's no formula that works well for every player. There's no sort of archetype that teams can lean in on and say, this is the modern NHL player. I think it's different. And it's certainly different at every position. I, I think even as the game gets smaller at forward, it's not getting as, as it's not trending smaller, at least as quickly at, at defense. And the same is true for goalies where, there still aren't very many 5'11", 6 foot, 6 foot 1 goalies in the NHL. So there are types in certain positions, but I think especially at forward, there, there, there are 10 different kinds of superstars in the NHL at forward. So there is no sort of magic eight ball in terms of finding that specific talent that you want. You, you, you have to be able to read into the little details and the way that these players think the game and all of that. So it's complicated, but that, that's the beauty of hockey, I think, is the, is the fluidity of not only the game when it's being played on the ice, but also just the different types of people that can thrive within it. Nobody thought that Elias Pettersson was going to be one of the 10 best centers in the world, despite the fact that he was a top 10 pick. Everybody thought that he was too weak or that he didn't, his ability to play with the kind of pace that he played on the larger ice surface in Sweden wasn't going to translate in North America and that he was going to struggle more over here than he did over there. And obviously the opposite is true. So we're still making uh, it, both excuses and mistakes for these kids. And I think that's always going to be a part of the job. It, it's just a very hard sport to evaluate. No question. I've got this theory that we're going to see even more players from the 2020 draft class make the leap just because of how much later the season's going to start and all that mm -hmm. added development time that they're going to get, especially if they're getting to play an extra half season in a developmental league or a European league or, or whatever it is. Does that make sense to you? And uh, to add another question on top, how many players do you think realistically make the leap out of this draft class? Well, I would normally say that there's really only two or three out of your typical draft class, but I do think it's going to be more than that. And I would say not only the kids that are playing and now have the opportunity to sort of get that time under their belt and then come over and maybe come back from Europe or whatnot to, to audition for their NHL club, but I think it's the other kids maybe who a team doesn't, suddenly doesn't have an option for them. If you're a WHL kid and the WHL or the OHL don't come back like you want, if you're Jack Quinn or Seth Jarvis or Connor Zari, and you would typically not be seen as the kind of kid who's, who's going to play in the NHL next year, and, and your team would typically send you back for a full season, well, what if the OHL doesn't happen like we think it's going to happen? There, there are still major concerns between the provincial government in Ontario and the OHL in terms of even pulling off a season. And not all of the team, if they can't have fans in the building, not every team is going to survive. So suddenly, maybe you have an 18-team OHL instead of a 20-team OHL. And that kind of a thing is a real possibility here. And it's very live, both with the WHL and the OHL. So for the kids who it's built in their contract that they can only play junior in the NHL and the AHL isn't an option, for them based off of age suddenly those Seth Jarvis's and Jack Quinn's and Connor's Aries maybe you have to thrust them into a role that they're not ready for maybe you have to give them a nine game audition in the NHL while you wait for their leagues to get back because you don't want them sitting around and doing nothing and they haven't signed in Europe yet so there's a lot that's live in terms of where these kids are going to be playing the jobs in Europe have now run out. All of those teams are poised to start. So I don't think that the exodus that you've seen of, of CHL and USHL and college hockey kids going over, I think that's pretty much done. You're not going to see a ton more kids to sign over in Europe. 
And so what happens is if the OHL and the WHL aren't able to pull off their seasons like they want to, then suddenly you've got a lot of kids who basically have nowhere to go other than the NHL. And, and suddenly those kids become more interesting. I think outside of that kind of circumstance where a kid is thrust into a role just by nature of it being the only option for the team, the kids who really deserve to be in the NHL are certainly Alexi Lafreniere, Marco Rossi, I believe, is going to make his NHL club. And then after those two, I think you've got a lot of kids where it's more 50-50. I think Cole Perfetti could make his team out of camp without question. I think he's more capable of playing in the NHL next season than a lot of people realize, despite concerns about size and skating and that kind of a thing. But I really think it's, it's Alexi and Marco for sure. Then you've got players like Byfield, Perfetti, Stutzla, Drysdale, um, those are the kids who I think it's more of a 50-50 proposition. Um, and then the QMJHL kids, the Dawson Mercers of the world, the, the Maverick Borks, I, I suspect that they spend, they all, all of those kids are going to spend another season in the queue and the queue's off to a good start in terms of COVID and all of that. So uh, they're well positioned, I think, to pull off their season. And then it's the other kids that, that get a little bit more interesting. But I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if you had six, seven, eight kids in the NHL next year who are able to sort of step in and play an immediate role and, that speaks, A, to the, the strength of the top of this draft, where all of those sort of third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh overall kids, the Rossies and the Perfettis, have a real case in a way that they normally don't. And then certainly Lafreniere, Byfield, Stutzler are going to get an opportunity to potentially make their clubs. So um, Byfield is actually the one of those kids who I think maybe Byfield's even less likely than a Rossi or a Perfetti um, to make the jump, if only because I think he's perceived wrongly in many circles of not being NHL ready. And I think that's a real sense that NHL clubs have about picking Byfield is that he's not going to be in the NHL next year in, in their sort of eva evaluations of where he's at so far. So um, I, I do think there's a chance that you could see players like Perfetti and Drysdale and, and Stutzla in the NHL and Byfield isn't, which would be another sort of interesting layer to, to the way that this draft might go. Well, and not to mention every team is looking to save as many dollars as possible. So while we've seen a yeah. whole bunch of veteran contracts signed, they may be looking for some kids to fill out the bottom end of the roster. Yeah, no, I, th I think you're banging on there. It, that, that too is going to be a big part of this where the majority of the teams in the league are on suddenly on tighter financial situations and the teams that are going to be spending to the cap, the Montreal Canadiens, the Toronto Maple Leafs of the world, the New York Rangers, who, who seem poised to really want to push for a, a, a sort of top of the Eastern Conference playoff spot next year. Those teams are in the minority. You're going to have a lot of teams that are on tighter budgets. And there's not just not going to be in a what is actually a pretty talented free agency or free agent class, I should say, it's there's not going to be enough money to go around for all these guys. And you're going to see a lot of NH, very good NHL players taking pay cuts. And then on the flip side, I think you're, you're going to see kids, the, the Nick Robertsons, the those sort of next, not true star sort of lock prospects, the Alexi Lafreniere's we all know are going to be in the NHL. But I think you're going to see a, a, a stronger case made for the Robertsons, for the Rossies, for the Perfettis, um, for the Thomas Harleys in Dallas. Those kinds of prospects are suddenly where maybe you have to fight for your position. The Evan Bouchards of the world in Edmonton. Um, suddenly the, 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 the option to play on the third pairing has, has opened for you because you're on a cheap deal. So that's definitely going to be a part of it. Absolutely. No question. Um, 
Scott, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think there's no end of work that people can find of yours on The Athletic. Uh, you could read for up until draft time, I think. Yeah, there's uh, there, no shortage of draft coverage. That's for, for damn sure. I'm, I'm really proud of the draft product that we put out between Corey and I and the rest of our staff at The Athletic. And I can't wait for, for Tuesday and Wednesday at this point. I'm, I'm sort of giddy and I'm just excited to get going. I'm excited to sort of provide the pick-by-pick -pick analysis and break down every selection and release some stories like the O'Rourke one that have been done for a while that we've kind of been waiting to drop. And all of that's coming. So you, you can probably expect in a two-day span to see six or seven pieces of content from me. And uh, I'm sure it'll be the same up and down the athletic where we've all been preparing for, for basically the last six months, whether it's me or the beat writers or people like Haley Salvian who haven't had any hockey to watch for their beat um, for a long time here. It's, it's been a long time coming. So everybody's really excited. And I think the entire NHL staff at the athletic is, is really thrilled that this is finally happening and that we're going to be able to, to dive in on it and break it all down and kind of get back to doing what we do best. Well, it's, it's absolutely well worth the subscription. I can't recommend it enough. Scott, you always make me smarter, so I really appreciate you coming on, and I, I appreciate all the hard work that you put in. I appreciate you saying that, man. Cheers. All right, everyone. That is our show. Stick tap to Scott Wheeler for coming on the podcast. Return guest, fantastic guest. So thankful for him coming on. If you like the show, please like, subscribe, and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're following me on Twitter, that's most likely how you stumbled upon this podcast, then please let me know what are you excited about with the NHL draft coming up. Let me know who are you excited to see picked. What, uh, what do you think of those predictions that I made coming off the top? I think it's going to be a wild and crazy draft, but maybe you think it'll be a lot more subdued. Let me know what you think. I'm open to the feedback and thanks for listening.